Adoniram Judson lived from 1788 till 1850. He died right about when Spurgeon was getting going. In 1788-1850. He was a Baptist missionary. In fact, he was one of the first Baptist missionaries commissioned by the then new American Board of Foreign Missions. And in 1815, Adoniram Judson became the first North American Protestant missionary to a place called then Burma. Burma is now called the Republic of the Union of Myanmar. I like Burma better, but you know where Burma is? Burma is kind of tucked in between India and China, sort of sandwiched in between India and China with Thailand down at its southeast border. So you've got India, then you've got this Burma, China, and then Thailand down a little bit below on its southeast border. It has cities such as Mandalay. You may have heard of that. And another city I think we've all heard of, Rangoon. That's in Burma. That's where Burma is. And Adoniram Judson, there beginning at 1815, had nothing. He went there with his wife they were isolated from America. They didn't really, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have much contact. They didn't have satellites to bounce a, a, a transmission and get to the North American Foreign Mission Board to let them know they needed something. They were alone. They were on their own. They lived off the land. They did what they could. Imagine these, these white people coming into this foreign land. They didn't know the language. They knew he was studied in all kinds of languages, so they tried their best. They learned the languages, but they were there for four years before they were even able to have their first service. Just getting settled, they were able to teach some of the people building of homes and how to build a little bit better homes, so they were kind of liked and the people appreciated what they did. But again, there for so long before they could have their first meeting. And after 12 years of laboring, they had only 18 converts. After 12 years of laboring, only 18 converts. But he labored on. He worked for the ministry. He stood fast for the truth. And he stood fast and took a stand for the ways of God, believing that God had opened this door of opportunity for him. And so they worked, and so they labored, and so they ministered, and he was faithful to the Word of God, faithful to the truth of God, and you know then, he was solid in theology. Good man. And by the time of his death in 1850... He had established there in Burma 100 churches with over 8,000 members. Baptist churches. Reformed Baptist churches. <laughs> with over 8,000 members. 8,000 converts. Because he labored, because he worked, 
because he stayed faithful to the Word of God, God blessed his ministry. To this day, every year, the Baptist churches in Burma or the uh, Republic of the Union of Myanmar, let's say Burma, to this day, the Baptist churches there every year celebrate Judson Day to commemorate the day that Adoniram Judson came to Burma. And God blessed his work. Isn't that great testimony? Last Lord's Day, I began by mentioning some of the overwhelming opposition that we face to the historic gospel. And we do. It's real. It's true. Churches like ours face today the threat of terrorism, the threat of Islam, pagans, anti-Christian government, giving schools the agenda to teach anti-Christian things. We face opposition from Hollywood, from the news. We face opposition from distractions, from wealth, from iPods. All of this stuff. But we're not alone. We've never... We're, we're not even that bad. We're not nearly as bad as Adoniram Judson and his wife as they went to a strange country unknown to them completely and tried to establish Christianity in this pagan nation. We do stand for the truth against overwhelming odds. Remember, even quote-unquote evangelical churches don't like us. We don't give invitations. We don't have music and you know all this dance and stuff. We don't do the things that you have to do to be a church today. And we always have that battle against the forces of darkness. We always have this opposition. But we're not the first, we're not the worst, and we're not alone. Others have gone through it far worse than we have. And God has blessed them. They faced opposition to the Gospel. And God has blessed them because of their stand for His Word. And we believe that that's what we're doing. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue on in our study. What are we supposed to do? We have so few. We have so little resources. We have such opposition. What do we do? Well, God tells us here in the Scriptures what we should do. We began by looking at verse 7 here in chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the angel, of course, being the, the pastor most likely, the, the messenger to the church. We talked a little bit about Philadelphia and what that church is like. And then in the rest of the verse he says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, that is the, the priest, the prophet, the king, the great and holy Jesus, the great Jesus who is indeed truth, the embodiment of truth, and Jesus who has the key of David, who is the king, he is the one who addresses this church and tells them, no matter what your opposition, no matter what you may face, I am the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. And I'm telling you this, I'm going to open a door for you. 
That's what he says. And that's where we're going. No matter what odds we face, no matter how much opposition, our God is greater than all of it. Our God is greater than anyone who would stand against us. But let's begin again to open up the text now today as we go on in verse 8 as he says, we looked at last Lord's Day, he says you have little power. We talked about the fact that they may have had little power in the fact that the church was likely a small church, that they were under Roman domination, and there was a, a lot of Roman emperor worship that was common in those days. They had to battle against that. There was a pagan element of worship that was common, even mentioned in some of the other churches that we looked at here in Revelation. All of these things were against them. And we made the point that we do face some of those same trials. We're a small church. Some of the same things they faced, we face. However, here's what we find. That although we may be small, and although we may face this opposition, God has unlimited power. We have limited power. We have limited strength. We have all kinds of opposition. But God has unlimited power. Verse 8 in the first part he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. He has the power to do that. So let's open this up a little bit and see that he can and does open doors. But first notice that he says, I know your works or I know your deeds. Now he said this to a couple of the other churches. I know your deeds. I know your works. And what is involved here is a very foundational biblical principle that God knows everything. You know, we say that all the time. God knows everything. Yes, He does. But let's make it personal. This God who knows everything, who is omniscient, that's what that means. He knows everything. This God who is omniscient knows not just everything. He knows you. And when I say He knows you, I mean He knows everything about you. And so He knows us individually and He knows us collectively. When we gather together as a church, He knows our deeds. He knows our work. He knows what we're doing. He knows us. And He knows everything about us. Now this goes back to what we saw in chapter 1. If you'd look back to chapter 1, in verse 13, John sees him in the middle of the lampstands. This is part of the vision that John has. He sees him in the middle of the lampstands. Then when you look down to verse 20, Jesus explains what that vision was. That though he was in the middle of the lampstands, the lampstands are the seven churches. So, if he's in the middle of the lampstands, it means he's in the midst of his church. He's in the middle of his church. So, he knows what's going on. Now, we made this point when we began this series. Jesus knows what's going on in His church. 
He's not a God who is far off. He is a God who is near. A God who is near to us. And so here He is in the midst of His church now, today. And as the God who is God in the midst of His church, He knows all. He knows all about you. He knows all about me. He knows all about us. And I thought I'd just take a moment to nail this down. Look, if you would please, at Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Let's just look at this for a moment. Think about this. Think about the God that we worship. Down to verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven and sees the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in Thee. But all of this you see, our hope is on God. We don't trust in our government. We don't trust in our might. We don't trust in our strength. Our trust and our hope is in God. And it is the God who sees us. The God who knows us. The God, as it says, who looks down from heaven and knows exactly what we need before we even ask. Look over a few pages to chapter or Psalm 44. Psalm 44, look down to verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. The secrets of your heart are known by God. There's nothing that you do that is hidden from Him. In fact, look at Psalm 139. This is sort of the uh, clearest explanation regarding this. Psalm 139. We studied this psalm for many weeks in our prayer meetings here not long ago. Verse 1, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. What? How did He do that? I have a uh, an antivirus program. You know, I block. You can't get in. No. Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Can you imagine that? God knows when you sit down. God knows when you get up. 
God knows whatever you're doing. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. This is God. God is intimately acquainted with all our ways. Individuals and church. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, Thou dost know it all. When you come here to church and sing hymns, I know that perhaps some of the hymns we sing may be a little bit new to you, but God knows your attempts to sing them from the heart or whether you're just going through the motions or whether you don't even care. God knows your heart when you come to worship. He knows the intention of your heart. He knows the words on your lips before you speak them. Our God is omniscient and He is sovereign. He knows all of this. Behold, O Lord, Thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid Thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. And that's true. Because you say this to the average person that God knows everything you think and you think of the billions of people that are alive today and they go, how can that be possible? And they would therefore dismiss it. And they would dismiss God. It can't be. There's no one like that. There's nothing like that. No one can do that. And yet this is God. This is our God. The NSA is trying to do it. God does do it. God knows everything about you. And it's because He is God and His ways are far above our ways and His thoughts are far above our thoughts and we can't attain to such knowledge. But this is God. He knows you. He knows me. He knows His people. And how can that be? Because He's not only omniscient, He's omnipresent. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from Thy Spirit? Or where can I flee from Thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, Thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, Thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there Thy hand will lead me and Thy right hand will lay hold of me. This is our God. He's everywhere. Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to thee. Don't think you can get away from God when you hide in the dark. He knows. And for the Christian, that's a good thing. For the Christian, we say, as the psalmist says here in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Sometimes the answer will come back, yes! There are some ways that are wrong in your life. And we say, God, deliver me! Help me! But God knows. God knows them all. So we say, search me, O God. Now here's the thing. 
God's in the midst of our, our church. He's in the midst of our church right now. And we would say, search us, God. No. Sometimes churches don't go forth. Sometimes churches don't have open doors because when God searches in the church, He doesn't find anything good. The things that He finds there aren't good at all. But I pray, and it is our prayer, that He would look into our church and see good things. Look into our hearts and see hearts that are alive and desire to please and honor and to worship Him in the right way. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah's great prophet. And he just, you find some great things in Jeremiah. And Isaiah. And Ezekiel. But here we are in Jeremiah. And Daniel. Look down, if you would, please, to verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. And is desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God knows your heart and your mind. He doesn't just know that you might know how to recite Scripture. He knows what's in your heart. So it's not enough to just have a right or an accurate theology. You need to have a right heart. God searches the mind and the heart. And He knows our deeds. He knows what we do. This is the God we worship. This is the God that is in our midst today, right this moment. In a supernatural, powerful way, God is in our midst, searching the hearts of the people in this church. This is what He is saying to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. I know your deeds. I know all about your church. I know what you're doing. And I not only know what you're doing, I know your motive for doing it. I know your heart. I know everything about you and everything about your church. Can you imagine the woe, the disdain, and the heartbreak of God in some of these places that call themselves churches today. What does He find but the callous disregard for His Word? That rather than preaching from the Scriptures or bringing theological truth to grow and mature a church. They get stories and they get games and they get nonsense. In one church that I pastored, the pastor who I replaced used to give football scores in his sermon. Or when he ran out of a few lines that he had uh, stolen from a 
magazine before he went into the pulpit and had some time left, he'd give football scores from the college games the day before. Can you imagine what a waste of an opportunity to bring the truth of God's Word? And these guys that would rather have you laughing and manipulate you with laughter and tears and this sort of stuff, preach the Word in season and out. Can you imagine the heartbreak, the woe of God in the midst of these churches that have a callous disregard for His truth or for His Word? I was taught in school, in so-called Bible college. Preach 15 minutes, no more. 20 at the tops. Why? Well, that's what people are used to. You know, you watch TV, you got 15 minutes and a commercial. People can't sit longer than that. They'll get mad. They won't come to your church. So you got to get it in in 15 minutes or 20 minutes at the most and then get done because that's all people want. Good grief. I hear of Whitfield preaching in the cornfields for three hours and the people can't get enough. What on earth are we doing? What are we teaching these kids? God's Word is vital and important. And it's what He says to do in His church. And so, how He must be heartbroken when it's not done. And not only the callous disregard for His Word, how about the shameless demands for money from some of these TV preachers and the so-called health and wealth gospel that goes forth. You come to our services and uh, I'll uh, make your leg whole. And they do the little trick with the foot. You know, they have the shoe that kind of goes on and off. And they do all of this stuff. They do this all for what? To separate you from your money. And they do it in the name of God. Can you imagine? I, I, I don't even believe that God is in the presence of any of that mess anyway. That's not a church. That's not a real church. That's not a, that lampstand has been removed a long time ago. But certainly he knows. He knows the motives of men like Rod Parsley. He knows the motives of men like uh, this Benny Hinn. These guys are shysters. And what's the, the one on TV that you see? Murdoch. Murdoch. Oh my God. Goodness, this guy is nothing but a, a shyster trying to get your money. These men will answer to God for their shameless disregard or their shameless demand. They're begging for your money. And how about the ridiculous display of entertainment? The ridiculous display of entertainment that goes on in churches today. We have to make people happy. We have to make people feel good. We have to get people pumped up so that they can get that 15-minute sermon. And so churches believe. And by the way, 
This is the, the philosophy of the many in the Southern Baptist Convention. You have to start with a good music ministry or your church will fail. Music is preeminent. I'd say the Bible is preeminent. But the teaching is music is preeminent. Rick Warren, how did he start his church out there at Saddleback? First thing he did was find a woman who could play the piano. That's it. We gotta have a piano player or we'll never get anywhere. That's what his focus was. And the rest of the games just follow. Entertainment has become the norm in the church rather than the focus upon the truth of God's Word. Let me tell you something. When you're in real need, when you're in a time of trial or trouble, that song you heard at church isn't going to help you nearly as much as an understanding of the truth of God's Word in your heart. And when you have that understanding of the truth of God's Word in your heart, you can get through hell itself, through the valley of the shadow of death, with courage and dignity and faith. It is God's Word that we live by. It is God's Word that we go by. Now, with that in our thoughts and our minds, look at what God says, what Jesus says to this church. Behold, I know your deeds. He knows what our church stands for. He knows what we do. He knows what we're striving to accomplish. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power. But now He gives two reasons that He would open this door or the door or doors for this church. He gives at least two reasons that He would open the door. And the first one is that you have kept My Word. Kept My Word. Now you know why it's just so vital. Because I believe that this is God. I believe that this is God, Jesus incarnate, the Son of God, speaking to His church, speaking to this church. And what pleases Him? What pleases Him is that you would keep My Word. That you would keep My Word. And how does He open doors? Because we have had a piano player? Because we have a drum set? Because we have a band? Because we have a chorus, a choir? Because you keep My Word. This is what God is concerned about. And this ought to be what we're concerned about. If this is what God is concerned with, how could we not be concerned with it? Keeping His Word. And keeping His Word is something that we say. We keep the Word of God. Something that we talk about. We, we keep the Word of God. But it's so vital and it's so important that I thought I might ask the question, what does it mean to keep the Word of God? Oh, we say it all the time. We keep the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean for you as an individual or for us as a church to keep the Word of God? And so we're going to take a little time 
as I could see, Lord willing, this week and next week, to just have a bit of an understanding of what it means to keep the Word of God. And the first thing I could point to, that as individuals, certainly we need to have His Word on our hearts. Turn again to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, that passage we read, because here is a clear statement and a testimony of what it means to keep the Word of God. Again, we pick up the reading in verse 9. Aren't we concerned about being pure? Aren't we concerned about being holy? Aren't we concerned about being right before the God that we claim to worship? How can we do that? How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to Thy Word. We keep the Word of God. We keep a pure and a holy life. I happened to print in the bulletin today before I did the work on the sermon, actually. They kind of went hand in hand. But that passage from Matthew, chapter 5, where Jesus speaks about letting our light shine before men, that we would glorify Him. That when people see us, it is a reflection of the God that we love and the God that we worship. When you look at the law given to Moses in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. You read before that in, in chapter 19, God tells them why He's giving them the law. So that when you keep My law, it will be a testimony of Me. It will show them what kind of God we worship. When we keep the Word, when we live a pure and a holy life, it is a testimony to the God that we love, to the God that we follow, to the God that we worship, we in that sense then glorify Him. As I said, we can't make Him any more glorious than He is. He is already completely glorious. We can't make God glorious. So when we give glory to God, it's not like we're saying that we are making Him glorious. He is glorious. No matter what you do. But making our lives pure glorifies God as people look at us and see in us the, the way that He has given in the Scriptures. And so, we in that sense glorify God as we keep His Word. As we keep our way pure. With all my heart, He says in verse 10, with all my heart I have sought Thee. Do not let me wander from Thy commandments. The, the cry of the church today would be, we live by grace, not by law. As if the commandments of God are a bad thing. We don't want the commandments of God. That's too bad. That's too harsh. We can't, we can't tell people to live by the commandments of God. Well, what does that mean? It's simply the moral law. And the moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is not at all bad. And is even more summarized by our Lord Jesus that we should love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. That's not a bad thing. 
And so we should delight to keep the commands of God. We should delight to keep the law of God, even as He says in this passage. Thy Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against Thee. Treasure the Word of God in your heart. Take the Word of God. Teach it to your kids. Have them memorize it. Teach them the Scriptures. Let them treasure it in their heart. You read through the Proverbs. You should read the Proverbs every day. Proverb 1 on day 1. Proverb 2 on day 2. I think that's why God had 31 of them. But you should do that. You should read a proverb every day. And when you do, you see in there over and over again how wisdom and understanding is so desirable. More desirable than gold. Even fine gold. The Word of God is such a profit to us. Such a profit to our lives. So important. So desirable. Treasure the Word in your heart. Look what he says. uh, Blessed art thou, O Lord... Teach me thy statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. See, that's what I was just saying. I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy way. See, Christians don't want to meditate. You've got transcendental meditation. We don't want any part of that. But meditating on God's Word is good. It's what we should do. Think about it. Think deeply about it. Don't just read through it and go, I did my duty and read this. Think about it. Consider it. Meditate on His precepts and regard thy ways. And look, I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy Word. Certainly, that is a synonym for keeping the Word of God. I shall not forget Thy Word. Rather than forgetting it, I'll keep it. And this is what the psalmist is saying. And he goes on to say it pretty much through this entire passage. But I'm just going to ask you to turn over the page in still in Psalm 119. And here, look down to... Um, Oh, we'll pick it up in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. I'm going to mention this again, Lord willing, next week. Christians, churches today have a, a, a warped focus on what you're supposed to do in your life as a Christian. They focus on how you begin. You got saved. You raised your hand. You came down an aisle. Good. Yeah, you're in. No matter what you say, you're going to go to heaven. It's all set. It's all done. They focus on how you begin. Even though if you never come back to church again, to them you're saved. They focus on how you begin. The Word of God focuses on how you end how you lived your life, all through your life. Teach me, O Lord, the way of Thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. That's the perseverance of the saints. The saints, the true saint of God, will be a true saint of God 
through all of their life, right to the end. Now, I'm not talking about people who may have Alzheimer's and people who get sick and things like that. But basically, by and large, the regular Christian will stay and maintain and be a Christian all through their life, right to the end. It's part of who we are. The perseverance of the saints. Not only will we persevere to the end, we will persevere. Live like it to the end. That's what the Scripture teaches. Now, give me an understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all of my heart. Keep it. Keep it. This is what we're talking about. What does it mean to keep Thy Word. He speaks of the law. The law of God. And he says, I will keep it in my heart. As he said in the previous passage, that I might not sin against thee. Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Once again, the commandments of God are not a hard thing. They are a thing of delight to the people of God. You want to know where your heart is? Do a check on your heart today. See where your heart is. Do you delight in the law of God? Do you delight in the commands of God? Do you delight in the Word of God? You see, this is the opposite of what we find so common today. It's noon, preacher. Time to go. I gotta get down to Sonny's! Gotta get out of here! I gotta golf tee off time! My boat is waiting! See this, this is church today! It's not that they delight in the law of God and the, the way of God, the commands of God. They delight in the things of the world and the things of the world take prominence over the things of God. Test your heart! Which is more important to you? The Word of God and hearing the Word of God? Or the things of the world and being in the world? This is the keeping of the Word in our hearts. The delight to our hearts. Verse 36, Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. You see, even if you've slipped, you can be revived. Establish thy word to thy servant, as to which produces reverence for thee, reverence, fear. The Word of God produces reverence for God as opposed to the frivolity that is characteristic of churches that do not hold the Word of God in esteem in their services. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for thine ordinances are good. Behold, I long for thy precepts. Revive me through thy righteousness. Gosh, God help us 
Work in our hearts. Work in our lives. Make Your Word this precious to us as individuals and as a church. Help us, O God, to keep Thy Word. Look at verses 105. Just going to say a few more. 105, just over the page. Thy Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep Thy righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to Thy Word. Remember I said a few moments ago, when you're afflicted and when you're going through a time of trial, What's that music thing going to do for you? But the Word will revive your heart. Thy Word comes to us even in a time of deep affliction and revives our hearts. His Word is good. His Word is a delight. His Word ought to have the preeminence and the importance in our church as well as in our individual lives. This is only the beginning. We've got several other areas and several wonderful things I want to see even from our Lord Jesus as He teaches us what it means to keep His Word. But I ask you even as we bring this portion of the study to a close this morning, if you understand and you realize that it is the delight of God as He says to that church in Philadelphia, I'm going to open doors for you because you have kept My Word. I know you're having a struggle. I know you're small. There are overwhelming odds. But you have kept My Word. How vital it is. How important that is to God. And I say to you that that is as important as it ought to be to us. Because it is important to God that we keep His Word. It ought to be important to us that we would keep His Word. Individuals, in your homes, and church right here. Don't ever let people come and stand in this pulpit. And when I'm gone, those of you who are still here, don't let anybody stand in this pulpit that isn't going to bring the Word of God that will show Scripture, that will compare Scripture to show what the precepts of God's Word mean. This is what we're doing. This is what the psalmist is talking about. Understanding the precepts of God. Well, the precept of God that we started with was Revelation 3a, Thou dost keep My Word. Well, what does that mean? That's what we're understanding. We're opening up and understanding the precepts of the Word of God and what it means to keep His Word. It's important to God. And so it's important to us. It's important to me as your pastor. And, and you know that we do these things imperfectly because we are but dust. But we strive to do that which pleases God. And part of that which pleases God without question, is that we would keep 
His Word. And so as we go today even, let's be sure that we do that in our homes, in our lives, and then when we gather again Wednesday night and next Lord's Day, that we would do so with the understanding that we're going to keep His Word. Remember what we began with. He knows. He knows whether you will or won't, whether you do or you don't. He knows your deeds. He knows your works. He knows you as He knows this church. I pray that He knows that this church keeps His Word. Let's pray.